Good morning. Hey, I got to share with you. Yesterday, uh, I got home from a ride, and when I got home, I always like to greet Shelly, my wife, and so I was trotting up the stairs because she was up there working on the computer, and I trotted up the stairs. I got about halfway up the stairs, and all my ball caps were just strewn all over the staircase. It's, that's a long story, but I mean, the caps are usually... I, anyway, Shelly had stuck, lined them all up there, and now they were strewn all over. And we have our grandson with us, he's four, his name's Cassian, and I looked down where he was playing, and I said, Cassian, did you do this? And he lifted his head up and looked at me, and he said, why do you want to know? <laughs> I thought that was perfect, absolutely, why do you want to know? Yeah. God asks Adam in the garden, did you do this? Why do you want to know? <laughs> well, it's Super Bowl Sunday. I, for years, I, say, I used to say, I n- I've never won anything. Maybe you're in that category that I was in for so many years. I've never won anything. But in 1994, when we moved to, to the valley from San Francisco, from San can you hear me? Did we just get a drop there? Now it's sounding, just as so long as you can hear me. A friend called me up. We, you know, I was here and they were there. And he says, they just called your name out on the radio. And I had won a Steve Young autographed jersey the year that the Niners last won the Super Bowl. So... Now I can say I've won something, and I actually thought I would wear that today. (laughs) Just to let you know that um, I had won something. (laughs) I am a Niners fan. Glad. It always pleases me to make some people happy. But I, I just thought, and even in light of this message, I thought, well, maybe today isn't the day to, to wear my Niners jersey since we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper. But if you wore your favorite football jersey, that's good. Someday we'll do that. We'll all wear our jerseys and stuff and have a fun time. Today we're in Acts chapter 21. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14 as we continue our series. And you can see behind me on the screen, and I put it in uh, bold green, that this is the ground that Paul covers. And to the right, you can see Tyre and Caesarea. I've blocked them out in bold green with black letters. That's where all the action takes place this morning as we read from Acts chapter 21. So uh, let's take a moment now and look at that together. And when it came about that we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre. And for there, the ship was to unload its cargo. And after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. 
And when it came about that our days there were ended, we departed and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. And when we'd finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And entering the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And as we were staying there for some days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we had heard this, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. We often talk about discovering ourselves. Uh, Maybe some of you have gotten to that age where you found yourself finally, but we do, you hear that, you know, trying to find ourselves. But the truth is, is that we do not discover who we are as much as we decide who we are. We don't discover who we are as much as we decide who we are. And that decision is made in the goals that we set for our lives. As Jesus people, our goals are different because of who we are. And who we are has everything to do with our decision to follow Jesus Christ. With our identity in Jesus Christ. With our allegiance to Jesus Christ. We decide to follow Jesus and that decision changes our goals, changes our lives. In verse 13, Paul declared, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. There's a lot packed in to the words, the name of the Lord Jesus. But I think we would do well to remember that we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name is the very identity, character, and reputation of Jesus. All that he is is contained in his name. When Paul says, for the name, 
of the Lord, and that's pretty important too, the, the notion that Jesus, all that he is, all that that name stands for is Lord. So he's really packing a lot in there. But as we think about our own walk with Christ, I think it can be very instructive just to remember what would Jesus do? Because in that question is kind of an unpacking of who Jesus is according to his word, according to my growing relationship with him. What does his name mean to me? What does it mean to me that he is Lord? Well, with that in mind, Paul is determined to go to Jerusalem. But it's against the better judgment of those around him. And you notice the we, the expression we. Well, that includes the narrator. And the narrator is the writer, Luke. He's traveling with Paul at this time. And as we know, Paul had companions that traveled with him. Others that were committed to Jesus Christ. Others that named the name of Jesus and called him Lord. Some of them, his dearest and most trusted colleagues, believed that it was in Paul's best interest not to go to Jerusalem, and they urged him so. But Paul keeps going. He keeps going. And he insists that he is following the leading of the Holy Spirit. On two occasions, Paul is given advice and urged not to go to Jerusalem. So obviously, not everyone agrees on how to interpret what's going on. And even interpreters today in chapter 21 are not in complete agreement. Some suspect that in verse 4, and if you have your New Testament open to Acts chapter 21, look at verse 4. It says, through the Spirit. And some suspect that Paul ignored the Spirit's clear direction not to go to Jerusalem. There's an implication that Paul didn't have to go. Maybe he was just stubbornly insistent. Maybe he had a death wish. And he persisted against spirit-sensitive advisors who urged him not to go. And so it raises the question, did Paul do the right thing? Could Acts have had a different ending if Paul hadn't insisted on going to Jerusalem? Maybe an ending that God wanted, but Paul ignored. Well, Paul was certainly human. I mean, we certainly look up to him. We admire him. But he was human, and according to my best definition of human, humans make mistakes. 
They don't always do the right thing or the perfect thing. Sometimes humans get it wrong. But I, for one, do not see Paul's insistence on keeping going to Jerusalem to be one of those mistakes. Look with me at chapter 19, verse 21, for a moment. Chapter 19, for me, that's one page back. Verse 21. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. It's going to read a little differently than your New International Version, if that's what you're holding this morning. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And the expression is taken by the NIV and others. In fact, the most definitive lexicon, or if you will, dictionary of the Greek language for this a period of language in the New Testament takes this as a figure of speech and it takes it as Paul's own spirit that he determined, he resolved in his own spirit to go to Jerusalem. But it does say in the spirit. And sometimes <laughs> you've got to take that seriously. It can either be a figure in which it just means resolved, which is along the lines the NIV has rendered it, or we're to see that expression, the Spirit, as having importance. And I would say that as we continue reading through chapter 19, 20, and 21, that the Spirit plays a major role. And, though, and, and, and it could be, and I do read it as, by the Spirit, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. In other words, by the Spirit's leading. I'll show you why. Look at verse 22 of chapter 20. Turn, turn to the next chapter and look at verse 22. 22 of chapter, it gets a little tongue-tied. And now behold, bound in the Spirit... I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that the bonds and afflictions await me. That bonds and afflictions await me. And I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. When he made the decision in verse 21, it was just after he had left Ephesus. And it was at that point that he decided to make that loop where he went back through Macedonia to see the Philippians and the Thessalonians, and then he went on to see the Corinthians and Achaia. And then he came back to Miletus, which we were in chapter 20 last week, and he called the elders to Miletus, the 30-some-odd miles, to meet with them. And it's there, then, that he says what we just read, and he says, in every city. I take that to mean that in every city, as he was making that circuitous route, after he had made that decision in chapter 19, verse 21, to go to Jerusalem by virtue of the Spirit, in every city, the Spirit kept telling him, you're going to face difficulties. You're going to face hardships. You're going, to, you're going to face imprisonment. He never says you're going to face death, but you're going to face imprisonment 
in Jerusalem. And that's what he then tells them in Miletus. And he says, then I'm, you're not going to see my face anymore because I'm going on to Jerusalem. The Spirit has testified what's ahead, but I'm going because that's what I'm committed to. That's how I take it. I clearly see Paul faithfully following God's leading, fully aware of the cost. And that really leads me to the the theme, I think, of what we're seeing here from Paul. And that is, keep going when it's for the name of the Lord Jesus. Keep going when it's for the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, just to try and make this really practical, because I know when we say the name of the Lord Jesus, that sounds so lofty, and it may seem way above our, our pay scale and where we operate. We may, we may think all the trivial little things that I do in my life don't measure up to exclaiming, you know, I'm going to keep going for the name of the Lord Jesus. And certainly this doesn't have to do with which brand of of bread you buy or which brand of soup you buy. I've been doing quite a bit of marital counseling of late. A lot of premarital because I've got three three weddings coming up. And I, I really enjoy that. But it makes me think about my own marriage. And I gotta tell you, I have a great marriage. In fact, even as a young man, my aspiration was that our marriage would be the chief achievement of my life. That it would be a beautiful marriage. That it would be, I would love my wife more and more. And that to me, I mean, is my great aspiration. And that affects everyone else. Everyone else in our lives, our children, our grandchildren now. And by by the way, you know, way back when you're in your early 20s, you're not thinking about grandkids. You're not seeing the the grand horizon. But I got to tell you, in a very real way, there were turning points in our lives that could have shipwrecked us if I hadn't made the right decision. And in effect, as I look back on it, that was my thinking. For the name of the Lord Jesus. And there are things in your life that you will know very well that it's for the Lord Jesus that you're doing this. Others may not be cheering you on. They may not see it. But it's just the same. It's for the name of the Lord Jesus. In verses 1 through 4, after saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, he goes to Tyre, and it's here that Paul gets his first advice. And I want, to note, I want us to notice three things about the advice that Paul gets. These are three things that I glean that are very prominent here in this chapter. I'm going to give them to you all at once, okay? The first is, at times, God's people can give you the wrong advice. At times... God's people, God's good people, Jesus' people can give you the wrong advice. Another thing we'll see here is that at times our advice can be based on our desires more than God's desires. Our desires more than God's desires. And at times our advice discourages rather than encourages doing God's will. Sometimes our advice, even with the best of intentions, 
discourages rather than encourages the doing of God's will. Well, let's look at that. Let's think about that first point. At times, God's people can give you the wrong advice, and I really see that in verse 4. Don't miss, by the way, the picture of God's family. Paul comes to Tyre. They look up the believers, and there is just this sweet fellowship, which is indicated by the way they, they, you know, they go with him to the ship and they pray on the beach and the, you know, the family's there and it's just, it's really, anywhere you go in the world, there are believers who will treat you like the dearest sisters and brothers of their lives because of Jesus Christ. That's not something you find out in the cold, cold world. I just want you to pick up on that. But it, our primary concern here are the words through the Spirit. i touched on this, and maybe I don't want to dwell on it too long with the time we have, but it could mean that the Holy Spirit, using the disciples as his mouthpiece, opposed Paul's plan to go to Jerusalem. But looking back, we already looked at chapter 20, and I pointed to verse 23, the Holy Spirit repeatedly told Paul what to expect in Jerusalem, and didn't he told him without forbidding him. Look ahead to verses 10 through 14 where Agabus comes down, he takes Paul's belt off, and he binds his legs and feet. And it's just descriptive, it's not prescriptive. He doesn't say, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. He just describes, as the Spirit has been describing, as Paul attested, that when you get there, there's going to be hardships. And this reminds us that sometimes in the Lord, it's not always going to be a rainbow, you know, kind of at the end of what God's calling us to do. So it, it, it calls for hardship. I have real trouble with the prosperity gospel, the mindset of the prosperity gospel. I know I'm a child of God. Jesus was too, and he sent him to the cross. Not everything is going to be wealth and blessing. That's not what God calls us to. He calls us to love. Love in Jesus Christ. Love that's challenging. Love that's demanding. Love that teaches us about the heart of God and the true sacrifice of his son. It's not for our indulgence. And that's hard sometimes because that's our bent. But there's something true about that, truly godly about that, that God is not about serving our indulgence but about serving something much higher, something much greater. And that, oh man, that's when life really starts to count, when it has meaning. By the way, and I hadn't planned to say this, but I'll just throw this in. I read this really interesting study on, on happiness versus meaning. And I, I could go on and on, but people who live to be happy are takers People who live to be happy are takers. 
and they can't get enough. And they never are fully happy, but people who live for meaning are givers. And they're sufferers. And they're people who are willing to give of themselves and to sacrifice, and yet they're the ones who are happy. That's really profound to me. Well, anyway, I think it seems better here in verse 4 to understand through the Spirit as Luke's shorthand expression for kind of all that's been going on that has already kind of informed our reading. And, and this is what has happened, that through the Holy Spirit, those believers in Tyre that are meeting with Paul have learned what awaits Paul in Jerusalem, and they, out of concern for Paul, are warning him, not the Holy Spirit, to go to Jerusalem, not to go to Jerusalem. And the Spirit's message, then, is consistent, so that Paul's friends are constantly saying, don't go up to Jerusalem, Paul. And Paul follows the Spirit even though his friends want to protect him from harm. And here's some application. we got to remember that just as then, good Jesus people give advice. But sometimes that counsel can be wrong. It makes me think of... uh, As a parent, sometimes we can oppose a decision of a child for Jesus Christ to follow Jesus Christ that might take that child down a path of difficulty because we don't want to see our children face difficulties. And yet it is for Jesus Christ that they're involved in that risk and jeopardy. Paul obviously doesn't heed the advice that's given to him. He keeps on going. And you know, for us, for Jesus' people, Jesus is true north. True north. And if you, in the transparency of your your heart before God, can say, I am doing this for Jesus Christ, then I would say, keep going. Keep going. Keep going. And that has application in every area of our lives. At times, our advice can be based on our desires, not God's, which is the second thing I wanted us to see here. Agabus offered no evaluation or interpretation as we see in those verses. What is it in... uh, 21, verse uh, 13, he said, Paul says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I mean, this is getting to him. And I think we need to realize that sometimes our desires, although maybe even if they're driven by good motives, sometimes our desires work against the will of God when it's our desires that are fueling the advice. And Paul says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Literally, he's saying, what are you doing breaking 
into little pieces, crushing, pulverizing my heart, which is breaking down his resistance, breaking down his resolve, softening him to what he believes, excuse me, believes strongly God wants him to do. And Luke is even among them, among him. Note well the advice of these fellow believers is wrong, but it's unanimous. And I think we in the United States, we can be really susceptible to that because we think democratically. If, if everybody's thinking this way, it must be right. Once again, I think we need to put our eyes on the compass of Christ. What is really pointing the direction of our lives. It reminds us that desire has to be set in the service of God if the name of the Lord Jesus is going to be honored. And the third thing I wanted to point out here is that sometimes our advice can discourage rather rather than encourage. You know, it's it's one thing to soberly oppose someone, it's another to weep. I, I Actually, I wish more people would would oppose me with tears in their eyes than with a cold stare. <laughs> that would be a little easier, you know, as I often say, hey, I don't mind you disagreeing with me, just let me know you like me. Let, let, it, let me know that we're in this together. And wouldn't it be a beautiful thing? We can, we can have disagreements on the issues and yet stay brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ and even work together for a greater good, taking into consideration the views. But you gotta have tears in your eyes sometimes. Sometimes you have to weep about these things. And that really tells me that it's not just our desire that we're seeking sometimes when we have tears in our eyes. And Paul says, man, this is breaking my heart. Because Paul cares for them too. He said, what are you doing? You're breaking my heart. I love that. We ought to all learn the Greek, you know. Wouldn't that be fun when somebody's just getting to you, just we could utter the Greek. You know, you're breaking my heart in Greek. That would be kind of a, you could wow people at parties with that. <laughs> Why are you doing this to me? I need your encouragement. And you know, we can disagree with one another and still encourage each other in Jesus Christ. And the beautiful thing is, is that when Paul says, I am prepared, I am prepared for the name of the Lord Jesus, he gives them a reason to stop because he's put it into focus. This is about the Lord Jesus. And we can always come together if we can have a heart to put him first. There may be tears. There may be a breaking of the heart, but we can talk it through. We can join together and pursue him. And they become silent. He says they fall silent at that point. He says, I'm doing this for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when they couldn't be persuaded, they said, the Lord's will be done. I think that's really beautiful. Look, three things we can draw from this. Paul's friends did what any of us would do. Point out the will of God as they see it for someone else. 
But what we need to realize is that sometimes we can be wrong. And we need to defer to the other person if that person is truly seeking the will of the Lord Jesus and putting him first. Second, Paul's friends meant well, but they were demanding on the basis of desire and not God's leading in Paul's life. Oswald Chambers, uh, this is from August 10th. His uh, devotional is paginated according to the dates of the calendar. He writes, to choose to suffer means there's something wrong. To choose to suffer, like Paul had a death wish. That's not good. But to choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. You know, I started out by saying, it's not about finding ourselves. We choose who we are, and then we, we determine that through the goals we set. And we have different goals because of Jesus Christ. Sometimes Christ is going to take you through things that aren't always going to make sense to those who don't have Christ in perspective. He goes on to say, no healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. And third, Paul's friends urged against Paul going to Jerusalem and actually were discouraging what the Lord was leading Paul to do. That's kind of sobering. Had they succeeded, would they have thought that they were used by God? Kind of a frightening thing. God's guidance and will is marked not by blessing and ease or by difficulties and trials. Those are the side effects, if you will. Paul could say, whether in plenty or in want, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God's will is branded with the name of the Lord Jesus. By far, I think this is the only place in all of Paul's writings I know sometimes in the English it renders it, but using the, word that, the words that are normally translated ready or prepared, this is the only place that I f- could find where Paul says, I'm ready. And it raises the question, are we ready? What do we have to be to be ready? This table in front of us is the answer to that question. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, at the very end of the chapter, Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory. Where is your victory? Where is your sting? He says, I'm ready. I can even face an early death, you know, not a death of natural causes, for the name of the Lord Jesus. I can face an early death with courage, without fear. Man, that is a power. And why? Because he says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where's your sting, death? It's almost like he's taunting death. And here's why. The sting of death is sin. And sin has been addressed in the life of Paul through the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, symbols are very powerful. Agabus, he took Paul's belt, 
which is very common in the prophets. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. I mean, it's really fun to see some of the stuff that they did that were enactments or kind of acting out God's will in visual ways. In a very visual way, Jesus left us something to always remind us powerfully of who we are. He said, this bread is my body, which is for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. When we take this bread, we are in the most profound and powerful way acknowledging, recognizing, and professing our faith in the fact that God has dealt away with all of our shortcomings and failings and sinfulness in the work of his son Jesus Christ and his life which was shed for you and for me. That changes everything. I think sometimes we forget what it's like to be weighed down by sin. And if you are weighed, by, weighed down by sin, then let's get it settled for once. He lifts that off of you, that you might rejoice in him and know joy that the world cannot know. An ease of mind, a peace, an access to God. I mean, this is what it's all about. We ought to be the happiest people on earth in that sense. There is just this default well-being and peace that I do think sometimes we take for granted. Or else we're still living by the sword of the law when it's already been dealt with. And this cup, the new covenant, a new life with God, New, 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 new in Jesus Christ. A new day. It can start right now when we get our heads straight. And sometimes that's all it takes. I mean, there are people paying good money to have somebody tell them how to get their heads straight. Well, this is one of the most profound symbols right here. To get your head straight, your heart straight with God. Let's just take a moment of silence and let that sink in as we commune with him, talk to him. Take it to heart. And then in powerful symbolism, we'll enact that very truth as we take the bread and the cup. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had blessed, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. After supper, the cup also saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink it. 